Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, with a message titled, Life After Death. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Titus 2.13 uses the phrase, the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the hope of all who put their trust in Christ. And we also know that when he returns, he will institute his eternal kingdom. And John describes that in Revelation 21.1 when John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then we're promised that God's going to dwell amongst us. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and that death shall be no more. And when John describes the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and then even the water of life flowing clear as crystal from the throne of God, several things come to mind. First, heaven is a real place. This is not symbolic language. It's a description of something that awaits all who put their hope in Christ. And we also see that in the life to come, there will not only be a new heaven, but also a new earth. The creation will be renewed. As Paul says in Romans 8, the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. And we also learn that we will be bodily resurrected, that the life to come is going to be physical with sights and sounds, with rivers and forests, the creation will inherit forever. And furthermore, the new creation will be a place of beauty and of abundance. Want will be no more. Furthermore, cities will be built. They'll be governed in righteousness. I've spoken on this both in my book on heaven as well as a recorded teaching on heaven. Heaven is the reason we don't face old age with increasing despair. We believe that we will rise with the Lord and we will be forever with him. Now, I don't need to tell you there are critics. Is it possible that we really escape death? You know, that's a philosophical argument. But there's also the sociological argument. Karl Marx argued that a focus on heaven is going to take away a focus of earth. Heaven, he argued, was used by the rich and powerful to delude the masses so that we would put up with oppression, not complain, sure in the knowledge that heaven awaits us. Take away the hope of heaven, said Marx, and people are going to fight for justice here and now. And that's why John Lennon sang, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And that's the sociological argument. If you don't live for heaven, you'll start to live for today. And that's only true when you're living without suffering and death. And if I might interject, I think the evidence positively shows that those who hope in heaven also give themselves unreservedly for others rather than simply living for themselves and their own self-indulgences. Knowing that heaven awaits allows us to fight for the gospel, to fight against evil, knowing that they might destroy our bodies, but that's all they can do. But there are other arguments against the idea of heaven. The naturalistic argument is that nature is all that exists, that there is no soul, there's no God. And it surprises some to find that this discussion is not a contemporary one. The ancients talked about this as well. Indeed, the Jews did, and so let me introduce you to the Sadducees. We read about them in the New Testament, but we might not know a great deal about them. And so here's a crash course. The Sadducees were the aristocrats of the Jewish world. They were the heirs of a group called the Hasmoneans. Hasmonean was the family name of freedom fighters and liberators. It was a priest named Matthias. 
Against all odds, he led a rebellion against the oppressive Syrians. And upon his death, his sons continued the rebellion, and eventually they succeeded in giving Israel their land back. And after that, the Hasmoneans, they ruled. They became a kingdom that ruled Israel. It lasted about 80 years, going from 140 B.C. all the way to 63 B.C., when Israel was occupied by the Romans. And so in 63 B.C., Israel is conquered by Rome. Herod the Great is then installed by Rome. He's called King of the Jews, replacing the Hasmonean rule. But Herod was always a shrewd man. In order to make his kingship seem legitimate to the Jews, he married a woman named Marian, and she was a Hasmonean princess. And so the Sadducees are the aristocrats in Israel. They are connected to the respected Hasmonean past. They were the natural rulers. Now, there were, as we might expect, far fewer of them than the Pharisees. I mean, after all, the Pharisees were teachers. They were looking for students and converts, and they tried to spread their teaching far and wide. That's a very different arrangement than a class of aristocrats who hold on to political power. See, at the time of Jesus, it was the Sadducees who controlled the priesthood. All the high priests in Israel were Sadducees although the Pharisees also had a place in the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish ruling council, it's clear that the Sadducees controlled it. The Sadducees had contacts in the Roman government, and over the years, their religious devotion diminished in favor of greater Greek and Roman influence in Jewish society. They were, if you will, progressive. And as leaders of Israel, the Sadducees worked hard to keep the peace in Israel by implementing Roman decisions. Rome could, on a great many occasions, count on the Sadducees to cooperate. And as time progressed, even though they were a priestly order, it becomes clear that religion doesn't dominate their thinking. They're a wealthy upper class interested in politics. But what about their religion? Did they have religious views on things? Well, it turns out they did. They believed that only the writings of Moses, that is Genesis to Deuteronomy, were authoritative. The rest of the Bible, they they downgraded in importance. And furthermore, when it came to doctrines, it becomes clear they're secularists. And so let's get a list of what they didn't believe. They didn't believe that God divinely ordained or foreordained anything. Indeed, they went even so far as denying that God was involved in everyday life. And for that reason, the thought, if you're going to get ahead, well, it's entirely up to you. Don't hang around waiting for God. Notice how very convenient that belief is to aristocratic rich guys. God's not involved. Get what you want. I mean, after all, you have the means to get what you want, and there's no God to stop you or to help you. Most rich people in the world have precisely that worldview. Well, what else? Well, they deny the existence of angels or of demons, or for that matter, a great deal of the unseen spiritual realm. So according to them, angels didn't exist. Again, as I've said, they're secularists. God is out there all right, but not very involved, so you should just get on with your life. According to Jewish historian Josephus, the Sadducees were rude, arrogant, power-hungry, quick to dispute with those who disagreed with them. And after all, why should they worry about the ignorant masses, the kinds of people that Jesus loved and healed and preached to? See, all of this leads us to the point of the passage we're studying today. The Sadducees denied the afterlife. They'd have liked John Lennon's song, Imagine. They said that the soul perished at death, and for that reason, they also did not believe there was a day of judgment. 
They thought they would never be held accountable for their sins. And of course, that's why they disbelieved the resurrection of the dead. I mean, just so much superstition for ignorant masses. As an aside note, the Sadducees were completely destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. That was in fulfillment to the words of Jesus, the ones that we've just studied recorded in Matthew 21, verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to others. Indeed, the Sadducees were enjoying their lives and they were living their best life now when Rome ended it all. There are no inheritors of the tradition of the Sadducees today. Well, all of that's an introduction of today's passage. Remember, it's Tuesday. Jesus is in the temple. He's created such a stir. His enemies are trying to discredit him before the watching crowd. Jesus has answered all their questions, and he's made fools of them rather than the other way around. But now the Pharisees decide it's time to push their own tired agenda. So let's read it. Matthew 22, 23 to 24. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And of course, this was the setup for poking fun at the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. But they begin their attack with the words Moses said. That's because they're going to push their agenda by using a baseline. Both they and Jesus are going to agree to it. Moses is the authority, is he not? And so they take Jesus to a Bible text. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. It says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the next verse tells about how the children of that union are going to inherit the estate of the dead brother. At any rate, that was the situation in Israel. And we might say, well, now, yeah, that's what the law of Moses did say. But what in all the world does that have to do with the aristocratic belief of these rich rulers who don't believe in a resurrection? (laughs) But they had thought it through. And they thought this was going to point out just how ignorant Jesus and his peasant followers were, the ones he's been leading in Galilee. Everyone has a story. We all come from a beginning and an end. And while it may go largely unnoticed by the world around us, God knows our story and he invites us to unite our story with his. The story of Jesus is not simply something we read. It's a drama which invites preparation and participation. We participate by faith and obedience. So thank you for your prayers and financial support that you offer this ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to telling the whole story of God with consistent, clear teaching of the Bible. Your support ensures the truths of God's Word are taught daily. We ask you to consider a gift to support Bible teaching this month, perhaps for the first time, or by becoming a monthly partner. To give a gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. There's an arrogance among some rich, well-educated people. It's an arrogance that disrespects anyone unlike them. 
You can almost feel the condescension when they talk. I mean, these kinds of people have mastered the art of making everyone else feel small and ignorant. And they've no interest in either elevating others as, you know, as if they could, or of listening to the chatter of the lower classes. And that's who is coming to Jesus. They're going to point out their contempt of him and of what he's done in Galilee and of his laughable claims to be the long-expected Messiah. And so they've begun by quoting from Deuteronomy 25. Now comes what in their mind is the foolishness of what Jesus believes. I'm reading Matthew 22:25 to 28. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh, after them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So here's the supposed dilemma. Now, I know that from the contemporary eyes, this, this does seem strange, but it's called the law of liverite marriages. That is why when you read, you know, the First Testament book of Ruth, you're going to find that Boaz telling Ruth that he might not be able to marry her because there's a relative closer than he, and that one has the first right of refusal. The closest relative is expected to marry the widow and have children with her, and those children were to be counted to the dead husband. But that's only the sidebar of this question. So let's see if I can put this question into our own contemporary language. It would go something like this. So you believe in life after death, do you? Well, that all sounds nice until you work out the details. I mean, think of how complicated relationships in the world to come would be. People who kill each other in war. People who are, you know, married to more than one person. People who have had prejudices towards others, you know, in this life, now sharing the same heaven with those other folks. I mean, what makes this case particularly complicated is that the view of heaven that both Jesus as well as the Pharisees shared is that heaven is not the end of relationships. There's a continuity between what happens here and what happens there. And furthermore, both Jesus as well as the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the body. See, it's not like the view of the transmigration of souls in which you come back in a different form. That's not the view of heaven that biblicists believe in. We believe that we will remember the life we had on earth as well as the relationships that we had on earth. And you can almost hear the Sadducees with their condescending laugh. Now, for our purposes, it really doesn't matter whether the situation they're describing actually happened or not. The point is, we can imagine it happening as well as a number of others like it. And what's more, you have to wonder whether the woman who went through seven men might have put something in their morning coffee. I mean, who but knows? So let's break down Jesus' response one step at a time. First in Matthew 22:29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. See, you're wrong for two reasons. One, you don't know the scripture. So let's stop there because it's very important. And I know that a number of us who do know the scriptures will point to many passages that promise the resurrection of the body. But almost all of those references are in the New Testament. How about the First Testament? I know a great many, even evangelical scholars, who have argued that the Old Testament has nothing to say about the life to come. I find that argument stunning. I mean, I want to say with Jesus, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. Let's review just a few. Psalm 69 to 10. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
Or how about Job 19, 25 to 26? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And then there's Hosea 13, 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O death, where is your sting? And then, of course, there's Daniel 12, 1 to 2. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, we could go on and on. You know, Psalm 23, David says he knows that he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord, not just for a short period of time or even a long period of time but he shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what does forever mean? Well, it's actually a very technical word. It means, yeah, forever. And so when Jesus tells the Sadducees they're wrong because they don't know the scripture, he might mean they don't know the whole of scripture. If you'd studied all of it, but you haven't, and because of that, you're making claims about things you don't know anything about. But Jesus adds a second critique. You're wrong because you don't know the power of God. Now, we've already pointed out how true this matter was. The Sadducees looked only to their own power, never to the power of God. They saw nothing of God's hand in their daily lives. But the power of God was everywhere around them. They were blind to it. It was there in the creation in which they lived. But more, it was there right before their eyes in Jesus. He had been healing the sick. He'd been raising the dead. He'd been giving sight to the blind and multiplying loaves and fishes in his hands and casting out the very demons that they denied and yet who oppressed the people whom they despised. All around them was the power of God. They knew nothing of it. And because they discounted God, that's why they discounted the resurrection. Look, it's the same today, don't you know? Those who deny life after death know nothing of the power of God. For we don't learn about life after death by asking, you know, if there's a soul or if the soul can survive the death of the body. I mean, all of those questions are only answered if there's a God who wills that it should be so. Our trust is not in a theory of how life after death is possible. Our trust is in God who lacks no power and who has made promises out of his righteous character. On this lies our hope. But Jesus is still not done. Although he could have been, you know, after he'd said those words, but he does say more. Matthew 22, verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. See, against this view is Islam and its belief, you know, in a number of virgins that the men of heaven enjoy. And against this view is modern-day Mormonism, which holds to the belief in celestial marriages. But why is it this way? Why is there no marriage in heaven? I know some couples, married couples, who have mourned because of that. I know of others who have said, well, if there's no sex, I mean, how is it even heaven? (laughs) But when we think of that, you know, we might say that not knowing that far higher joys await us in glory. But how are we like the angels? Well, the angels are spirit beings, and we are raised bodily. And in that respect, we're not like angels. But we will be like the angels in one respect. They don't die. We don't die. 
the number is set by God, so will ours be. It's fascinating that Jesus raises the matter of the angels. You see, the Sadducees didn't believe in them, but if they had known their scripture, they are found especially in the writings of Moses, the writings that they affirmed from Genesis to Deuteronomy, lots of references to angels. I think the references to angels is deliberately made to demand of the Sadducees. If you're going to make your case from the law of Moses, at least at the beginning, you're going to have to come to terms with the presence of God and of angels. And if angels exist, then why is it such a stretch to argue that we can't exist like the angels for all of eternity? Jesus is still not done. Verses 31 to 33. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Since the Sadducees were so fond of the books of the law, let's go to those very books, says Jesus. Moses wrote those books, and yet he quotes God saying over and over again, he calls himself the God of the patriarchs. I am the God of Abraham. It's found in Genesis 26, 24. That was said after Abraham had died, and yet God still identifies himself as Abraham's God, present tense. In short, those who quote scripture to Jesus as the Sadducees did should actually know what's in it. And the crowd loved it. No one had ever bested the arrogant Sadducees before, but the Son of God had. And the Son of God made the case that there is an eternal kingdom to come for the righteous. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think this is a topic we've covered a few times. So can I ask you, how do we best shape our understanding of heaven? Well, obviously, uh, the scripture gives us a portrait of heaven, um, which is physical, it's bodily. Um, it's all of those things that, um, you know, there's a new heaven, there's a new earth. And um, you, we, we need to think in terms of a bodily resurrection as Christ was raised, so we also will be raised bodily. So all of these things, you know, form the basis of our understanding of heaven. But I think more than anything else, let me just simply reemphasize something. Let scripture, not our human deceitfulness, determine what we look forward to in heaven. And ultimately, what we do look forward to is bowing before the feet of Jesus, seeing him face to face, and always being together with him. That's the ultimate goal. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hey, it's Phil Calloway. I want to tell you about my newest book with Laugh Again, 12 Days of Christmas Stories. In it, I share 12 of my favorite Christmas stories to help you laugh and think about Christmas. This beautiful coffee table book includes Bible readings from the real Christmas story. It's perfect for reflection, reading around the dinner table, or sharing with kids of all ages at bedtime. And there are bonus features too. Four of my favorite stories have special QR codes that lead you to four videos where I read the story for you. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is filled with colorful illustrations, perfect for a new Christmas tradition. Finally, this book is our gift to you. Just call 1-800-663-2425 
or visit laughagain.ca and request your free copy. Did I say free? I did. Merry Christmas. <laughs>